I think a lot of people are always afraid to hire people smarter than themselves as well. Mm -hmm. And I love hiring people smarter than myself. One, it's a great team. I don't have all the answers. I listen to things and I can put things together and provide resources to people and everything. But wow, when you have a team that is not afraid to speak what they're thinking and knows that their ideas are going to be given due process in terms of consideration and implemented in most cases when people would bring things to my attention. That's the culture you want to build. Welcome to Wise and Wine, a play on the phrase rise and shine. Now look here, folks, I've had five jobs in the last two years, and that shit just ain't normal. Or is it? No, no, it's not. So I'm turning to diverse people who inspire me both professionally and personally with careers that didn't exactly start at point A and end at point B. We'll explore how their families, their cultures, and their communities impacted their career decisions, as well as the exact moment they decided to pursue their passions, even if that passion wasn't a direct path to a pension or a 401k. Hopefully, I'll come away knowing how they became the badass, the confident, the strategic people that I admire. And if I don't come out of this project a little wiser, well, at least I'll enjoy the boozy wine ride. You guys, this is a podcast I've been dying to do ever since I had a podcast. And this is with a former manager, boss, supervisor turned friend of mine when I worked at the university. And part of the reason why I wanted to have him on was to give the perspective of what it's like to work at a university. Um... And the university that you don't see on TV. So not the football team, not the band, not Bill Gates giving money to whatever. But like those of us that work with students who are passionate about molding students on both the academic side, but also with all the social adjustments that they've got to make when they come to university. There are definitely people who college is not for, and I will give that to you. College is not for any, for everybody, but for those students who college is for people like myself and my former manager, boss, friend, supervisor, Rob, like we were really invested in the whole student. And so when they came to us as academic advisors, it was more than just their grade. It was more than just registering them for a class. It was what can we do to prepare you for your future? So we were not in a position where we were clocking in and clocking out. Um, those of us not in some of those high profile positions are on a university campus are wo- woefully underpaid. So when you hear Rob talk, you're going to hear that passion, that drive, the people that are working at the university because they care about the students. Um, And Rob recently retired. He worked in higher education for about 33 years. And I knew he had an eclectic background, but, and I'd heard snippets of it here and there when we'd be out for happy hour or lunch or whatever, I would hear a glimpse about, oh, he owned a comedy business or, oh, he almost flunked out of college or, oh, he worked in a business and completely changed the business. So I'd always heard snippets of his life, particularly for somebody that came from rural Arkansas, 
first of all, I loved his accent, but secondly, hearing about how my perception of Arkansas is different than his lived experience in Arkansas. You know, for me, I think Little Rock Nine. For him, he grew up in a rural, poor town where that wasn't his experience. Although he was poor and his dad was a minister and his mother didn't, um, I think she, she had like a third grade education, that he was rich in a lot of different areas. And one of that being that he had exposure to everybody. So even as he's growing up and he's emerging in rural Arkansas, son of a Methodist preacher who happens to be gay, all of that stuff that he's dealing with, he's come through it with love and he's come through it with just a really positive perspective and he's come through it wanting to be an ally for everybody um so i don't know i just i just loved hearing his story um this is a long one i will warn you he has a huge experience and he wants to tell his story because it's a great story so i will give you a break halfway through. So just be ready. I'll cut in, kind of set the room and then move on to the second half of, of his life. So without further ado, I present one of the best managers, the best manager, boss, friend I've ever had, Mr. Rob Pointer. Hi, Rob. Welcome to Wise and Wine. What are you drinking today? Since it's morning, I'm drinking coffee. But if it were afternoon, I would be drinking 19 Primes Snoop Dogg Cali. So I have an open bottle downstairs. Uh, so uh, I'm not I'm not kidding about that. That was not a setup for this. Uh... <laughs> I think Martha rubbed off on him in some very good <laughs> as he did her so <laughs> i mean facts for sure yeah all right so this is why we're here today i want to learn a little bit about you like i know you from working with you but you had a whole life before we ever met so please walk me through your career path sharing how your choices were influenced by your family and your culture and yes being from arkansas is a culture yeah, and it's more of a tribal culture, I would throw in there. Uh, it's a really, it's an interesting place to be. When I first moved to Texas and would say I was from Arkansas, the most common response was, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and then I would say in my mind or sometimes out loud to people, oh, that's good that you think that because that'll keep you out. Of it. Um, my family, yes, they definitely influenced uh, my choice of in a way, in terms of attending the University of Arkansas, I mean, that was the most prominent university there. It's a, you know, a very poor state, which is interesting that they have like a lot of higher ed options there. And that was when I was in higher ed there, that was one of the things we kept looking at. It was like, how can this state afford to support this many places? Because it's just the population isn't there. And at that time, many people wouldn't come from out of state to be there. But anyway, because my mother and father were huge uh, Arkansas Razorback football fans, I had I memories, some of my first memories are of attending football games with them. Back in the day, there was this big open hill on when, one end of the stadium, and you could pay like a dollar a person to go in and just sit on a blanket. And that's what we would do is go in and sit on that hill and watch the football games and everything. But my sister and brother, they would do caravans, they would decorate their cars and, you know, a bunch of people from my sister's high school, my mom and dad would sort of, you know, 
chaperone all of them and they would caravan up to the you know the university and watch football and everything so that planted the seed of that there was a university of arkansas i mean college was definitely emphasized and higher ed was respected but i don't think anyone really thought that people would go on to college. I mean, I think that was a very small percentage of people and the expectation of that was very, very low. I mean, it wasn't like they had a negative opinion of higher ed, um, but um, it just wasn't something that most people did. Now I should actually back up a bit and say, you know, my brother played football in Charleston. And so my thing was, I just went crazy over the band for some reason, I mean, and so that was implanted in my mind. And then when we would go to these parades in Little Rock and see the University of Arkansas band, I, that's when I started saying it about seven or eight years old, I'm going to be in the University of Arkansas marching band. And so I think it was a roundabout way I got to hire him. It really wasn't, oh, <laughs> I'm going to go do these wonderful academic things. It was like, I'm going to be in the band. Be the band. So, so I think that, you know, Definitely my family culture exposing me to the university. Like I said, it was sort of a backdoor thing to higher ed, but they definitely had influence there. I think that, you know, in terms of what I was going to do. And so I started sort of focusing in on that. I wanted to be an attorney. Oh. And um, so got to the University of Arkansas and I was talking with people and saying, you know, I'm going to do a degree in political science. And then my goal is to go on to law school and everything. And the first question would be, what type of law are you going to practice? Uh -huh. And I would tell them, oh, I'm not going to practice law. I just am interested in the law and want to learn about the law. And I don't know what I want to do career wise and everything. And to a person, everyone said, oh, you can't do that. You can't just go learn something and then not make a career out of that. And I let that really influenced my decision on that. Mm -hmm. And so coupled with that was the fact that when I was in um, college that a number of my friends had selected that same path and they were graduating from law school and not getting any jobs. So that was just sort of the tipping point <laughs> of like, oh, well, maybe I really won't do this. Um, you know, I did not have a typical college experience uh, and so few things I do are typical. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's not a and that's the, that's the point of the podcast. And I feel like everybody that I've had the chance to interact with an interview, like they didn't start here. Like I think nobody, and that's kind of what I'm interested in hearing and either to make me feel better about my choices or for other people <laughs> who are, are looking at their career similarly, like when you think you're going to go here, you don't always stay on that path. And I know I changed my major in college like seven times because like you, I was interested in a lot of things and there wasn't a place when I was in college, you know, they didn't have multidisciplinary or inter interdisciplinary degrees. It was like, you pick your major and you do this. Like, it wasn't like, but I also like this. And I also like this. And I also like this. It was like, nope, you pick this one major and stick with it. So if that is your story, I would love to hear it. Make me feel a little bit better. In like the final months of my senior year, uh, at that time, a private college in Arkansas, Hendricks College, which was a Methodist-supported uh, uh, university, uh, Methodist church-supported. My father was a Methodist minister. And so the reason I mention all this is because it was a very um, sort of elite institution in some ways. It had a, they were really, their admission 
standards were very high, much higher than the University of Arkansas. At that time, if you could sign the application, you got into the <laughs> University of Arkansas. And so the recruiter came and talked to like four of us in my high school class and said, you know, we want you to come and we'll give you some scholarships and everything like that. And then he pulled me aside and he said, since your father is a minister, you go for half price. Wow. But they, and I looked at him literally, Jen, and said, but you don't have a band. <laughs> <laughs> and he, well, I could see, I don't know if he actually rolled his eyes, but I'm sure that he wanted to and like, oh my God, you know, that's what you're going to choose. Uh, that's how you're going to choose higher ed. So, so I went on, like I said, I had some, you know, modest scholarships and got to the University of Arkansas, I had this experience with people telling me, you know, you can't, do law if you're not going to practice law and everything, but I did really enjoy political science. And so that was my major when I arrived was political science. And I tried to change it a few times and, but it was more of a downward slide thing because, uh, you know, when I got there, I was in, not in band the first year. I did really pretty well my first year because it was like the 13th grade. And and interestingly enough, my father, we had lived in a number of different places in Arkansas. And so at times I was really bummed that, you know, we'd be somewhere about six years and then we'd move. But when I got to University of Arkansas, all these people that I knew from all these towns were at the University of Arkansas. So it was really easy for me to assimilate. And it was sort of like the 13th grade for me because I knew all these people and I was doing relatively well because I was sort of pursuing things that I knew a lot about at that time. And then as things went on, um, not only was it getting more difficult, but then through my exposure in band and the freedom I found there and the connections I found there, I started dealing with this thing that was way down inside that I had never really thought about in terms of, you know, what the revelations were. In fact, I couldn't even put a word to it until my senior year. There was one of my really good friends that was in band there. And when he would walk into school, there was a group of people that would hang out and smoke and dip and everything outside of one of the back doors that was by the parking lot. And when he would walk into school each morning, literally every morning, they would yell, jump faggot at him. Oh my God. And so I started thinking about that. And I don't know that I even knew what that meant at the time because we moved there from a place that was so isolated. It was in uh, the one of the poorest counties in Arkansas. The school district was huge. I mean, they went out and shook the trees to get people to come into school <laughs> and everything. And that was an interesting uh, experience as well. But anyway, they would say these things to my friend and I was like, you know, what is that all about? And then I started you know, of course, there wasn't internet or anything, and then started asking some people I trusted, you know, what's the deal? And they was like, well, you know, I don't think the word gay even really ex existed then. Mm. And then it came to the point where someone sort of, you know, boiled it down for me. And I was like, oh my God, that's me. Oh, wow. And so I was still way under the radar at that point, although I'm sure people, <laughs> I don't know why they didn't tease me like that, because I mean, looking back on it, oh my God, I could have just worn a shirt that said, I'm gay across the front. I mean, I felt like I was, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just surprised that I wasn't bullied like that, but thank mm. goodness I wasn't. Mm. And so back to the original part, um, in my sophomore year, I started the process of coming out. Wow. And that was a real 
that was an experience, particularly in Arkansas in 1980. Um, and so I lost a lot of friends. And so it ties to my college career in terms of like, I'd hit this point where I wasn't really sure what direction I was going. And then this very personal thing was happening and my grades plummeted. Mm. I became very depressed looking back on it now. I mean, at the time I was just like, oh, I'm just having a hard time and everything. But I mean, I would get up and lay on the couch all day, not even go to the campus to go to classes and everything. Because mm. mm. when I'm processing really heavy things, I have to just lay everything else down and process things. And sort of had a boyfriend at that time that no one really knew was my boyfriend. And then we had, I started hosting these huge parties, which I found, wow, partying is much more fun than going to college. <laughs> that wasn't good. Uh, but anyway, after a party one time, um, <clears throat> they came over the next day because they didn't really like my boyfriend. Hmm. And uh, they came over and they were like, oh my God, we finally get it. You know, and they said, we know that he's your boyfriend because I had not disclosed this to anyone. Mm-hmm. And they said, and therefore we know that you were gay and we just want you to know that that's okay with us. And Aww. we will stand by you, you know, no matter what. And you know what they have, they're still my friends to this day. Anyway, it took me a while. Um, you know, I was still enrolled in school, not going to school. They had grade renewal at the time. Uh, I, one fall took 18 hours of coursework which you know, now having been an advisor and everything, it's like, what the heck? Yeah. 18 hours. Are you kidding me? That's a lot. Uh, I tell people do not take 18 hours when I was an advisor. So, uh, and I had this wonderful, wonderful advisor in political science. Uh, so she was very connected in Arkansas politics. And uh, when I lived in Charleston, this little town that I was talking to you about earlier, where I first started finding my love for music and band and everything, there was a gentleman that attended our church and taught Sunday school. His name was Dell Bumpers, and he later became the governor of Arkansas and then went on to be a senator in Arkansas. Oh, and wow. she um, was very good friends with him. And so when I ended up in her classes for political science, we would talk, and then eventually this came out. And so we became, I would say, friends. Diane and I became friends and she became, I think I selected her at that point as my advisor. I don't know. Maybe I was assigned. I don't know. They only had faculty advising back then. Mm. And so anyway, I sort of started this downward spiral coming out, blah, blah, blah. And uh, like I said, I took 18 hours one semester and didn't even go to the campus and failed everything, obviously. Oh, wow. Except for band. I was still enrolled (laughs) in band and I passed band. Um, and then the next semester, because of grade renewal, I was like, oh, well, I screwed up. I'll fix that. And I enrolled in the same 18 hours and had not fixed myself and did the same thing. And so, mm. you know, I lamented the fact that I had those semesters and then some not really stellar semesters after that, not quite as catastrophic of a failure as those two semesters, but some that were touch and go for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I looked at those, you know, when I was thinking of, you know, after I graduated and was thinking of going to grad school. And of course that destroyed my GPA. Mm. And so I thought about going through a process to have that, you know, removed from my record and everything. And I'm such a weird person. Then I started thinking, no, that actually shows 
I ran into this huge thing and I struggled for sure. But then I came back because when I, you know, I'll get to it here in a second. When I came back, Rob Goes to College Part Two was an entirely different experience and I did really well. And it just showed me that I had the wherewithal to weather, you know, some very big storms and everything. Mm -hmm. But during that downward spiral, Diane, my advisor, pulled me into the office one day and shut the door and said, you know, so I'm going to talk to you not as a way a faculty member would talk to their advisee. I'm going to talk to you like I would talk to my son. And this is what I have to say. You've got to get your shit together. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you know, sort of stunned at that. And, and then she said, you know, you're just digging your hole deeper. And so you've either got to figure out a way to pull this out or I can't believe I'm telling you this. You've got to leave the university until you figure out what's going on because it's just, it's not good. It's, you know, it's just not going to be good for you right. in any form or fashion. Well, of course, that age, I didn't listen to that, but the seed was planted. And after a, a couple more terms of not doing very well, um, right before the, well, I think the university also encouraged me to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I was suspended. And so I left. And then uh, I was out for five years. And over the course of those five years, first of all, I totally came to at least a comfort level within myself of who I was and everything, even though I'm still, now that I've got more time on my hands, I'm going back and thinking about all this. And I don't know that I've really had that talk with myself in a meaningful way at that point in time it was more of a survival thing mm -hmm. um so left and uh over that course of period of time sort of processed all the stuff about me being gay and then uh when i got to the point where i was sort of on hard financial times i moved back in with my mother and father and then i got a job in um at Dillard's in retail, but I was working in the office. And when I was working in that office, I started realizing I really did have an interest in business. Mm. And so I started realizing, oh, I really like numbers and stuff like that. And so then just out of the blue, uh, one of our the members of my father's church, uh, he and his brothers had an accounting firm. And he let me know that there was a position available there and asked if I wanted to come interview for it. And I said, yeah. And so I went there and got the job and they really started training me about, you know, I was basically a bookkeeper. And so I would do books of various businesses that they had contracted with and everything. Mm -hmm. But then they found out I was sort of good about telling people how to run their lives, I guess, because I couldn't run my own. I could run <laughs> other people. And I think that was the same thing with advising. You know, I could give people all kinds of great advice, but I was struggling throughout my life in terms of doing that same thing for myself. I can always take care of other people better than I can take care of myself, I found. Unfortunately, right. I don't have to brag about it. Uh, well, I don't know. I've helped some incredible people over my life. But anyway, um, so working at the accounting firm, I paid off all of my student loans that I had um, and really started realizing, oh, I really do like this. And like I said, they had assigned specific clients to me where I, they didn't have, they were really good at their business, but they didn't have any business sense like they knew how to run the services they had and everything mm -hmm. did not have the business sense and strangely enough it was starting to really come you know clear that I did and so 
um, they would assign me these people and I would have their checkbooks. I would do their payroll for their employees. I would even, there was this one couple that they loved to spend money and they were deeply in debt, even though their business was very viable. And they had, uh, Tyson's is a huge poultry producer there in Arkansas, and they had a contract with Tyson's providing them supplies. And so they were making lots of money, but they never had any money. And so that was my job was I put them on a, you know, an allowance and they couldn't spend any more than what I gave them. And let me tell you what, the number of times that both of them, the man and the wife came in, you know, sweet talking me, trying to get me <laughs> more money and everything. And I would not do it. I spent a lot of time at their house. They were wonderful people. Don't get me wrong. And uh, we got them turned around. And so they were like, oh, this is really good. And so we're going to offer this as part of our services to people. And so oh, wow. I had really gotten into that because I had periodically gone back to the University of Arkansas in hopes, you know, that I would get back started back up and, and complete my degree. And it was always met when they looked at my record, mm. they were like, no, you, there's no way you're going to finish your degree and everything. Mm. And they were always so negative. And my friend, Natalie, she had had a circuitous route through high school and everything. And so I trusted her and she said, I talked to this guy and I know if you go talk to him, that he will lay out a way for you to finish your degree. He's all about that, not about judging you and everything. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. And so I went and talked to him. And so he was doing a degree check. Remember when we used to do those by paper yes. forms? There was no uh, technology to do that. So he was sitting there putting all of my information onto a degree plan sheet to sort of see where. And so I could tell. So he was very he could not see very well. He wore glasses, but even with those couldn't see very well. So he was like over my records, just, you know, like an inch above them, just looking at them. And I could tell when he got to the part where it started the downward spiral. And I thought, well, here's the end of this conversation. You know, I'll be leaving in a few moments. And he never said a word. And almost at the end, he looked up at me and goes, you had a couple of rough semesters there, didn't you? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And then he went, looked back down and he finished the degree checklist and he gave it to me. He said, if you take these courses, you will graduate. Do you have any questions? And I was like, OMG. <laughs> Someone who, well, come to find out he was gay as well. Not that that entered this conversation or anything, but I think that he had more of an open mind about people being able to overcome things probably because. Of so anyway, this was what he had showed me was a public administration degree because it was at the University of Arkansas. It was located in the College of Business, but it was half political science and half business. And I had already completed all the political science courses for the. And so it meant that I was, you know, I'd found this new love for business. So it meant that I was going to go back to school and take courses and things I really loved. And so it just was a match made in heaven, so to speak. And it was just like, oh, this is great. But I went to see my advisor in political science, Ann Henry, uh, who is just a, oh, an amazing person. And we were sitting there talking about things. And I said, you know, I'm really excited about because I'm going to take these business courses and so forth. And, um, but I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, what do you do with a degree in public administration? She goes, hang on. And she got up from her desk. And about 20 minutes later, I was sitting there going, okay, like, 
did I say something wrong? <laughs> run away? Or like, did something happen to her? I mean, you know, I started being concerned for her safety. It's like, where is she? About that time, she walks through the door and she goes, follow me. And she took me down and introduced me to Elizabeth Proctor. She said, this is Beth. She is the dean, the associate dean of the College of Business. And there's a position open in her office right now. And so I want, you know, you should apply for this. Well, uh, I did. I got the job. It was really interesting because it was a clerk typist too. I made less than the custodians at the, at the university. Yikes. Okay. And uh, you had to type a certain number of words uh, per minute. And this is, I got to tell this because when the biggest fight really that I ever had on a long-term basis with my father, when I was in eighth grade, um, they offered a semester long typing course. And he was like, you need to learn how to type. And I was like, I don't want to learn how to type, blah, 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 blah. And oh my God, he made me take that course. I mean, we fought about this for a long time and I was a horrible typer. You know, I was my typing teacher. If you were looking at the key, she would come put a box over your head. <laughs> so come to find out this job had a minimum words per hour typing that you had to have. And so I had, you know, picked up typing, but was not proficient by any means. And in the College of Business, they had at that time, they actually had like an area that taught these skills because that was still what the focus was from old business education is that adding machines and typing and everything. I would go down there on my breaks and at lunch and everything and just sit and type and the typing teacher would was coaching me and everything like that. And I think I failed the typing test at the university level. It was 35 words per minute, I think was what it was. Oh gosh. And I failed it like three times when you would go to HR and take it and everything. Mm -hmm. And because of my connections at the university, they were able to get it where I would be able to go down and take it on breaks from work in the College of Business, which is just unheard of. Right. And uh, they let me go ahead and, and take the position, even though I hadn't fulfilled that. And they gave me a certain amount of time. And lo and behold, with much practice, um, I was able to achieve that. And so I had this job and Jim, the person who had gone over my transcript was my supervisor. Oh, so funny. <laughs> so it all tied together. And I just had the most wonderful, I would go to class from 7.30 to 8.30 each morning. Then I'd work from 8.30 to five, um, in the afternoon and I go to class from six until 10. Oh gosh. For the last two and a half years of college, that's what I was doing. And so, um, as I said, since I found a passion and, you know, something I certainly enjoyed in terms of the business courses and everything, um, the second Rob Goes to College Part Two was much more uh, fun and successful than the other parts. You know, when I was working in the dean's office, I started doing degree checks. I would do degree checks and feed them to the people that were meeting with students and everything. And they were like, man, you can do these so quickly. And, you know, we've seen you out at the front desk talking to people and everything. You're, you know, you're very good with people and everything. Would you like to actually go over these degree checks with people and talk to them about that when they come in? Lord Jennifer, think about this. There was a book on the front desk, the front counter in this dean's office. And if you wanted a degree check, your student ID number was your social security number. Yes. You would write your social security number in this book and it lay, you know, it was out there all the time. 
and so you would put it in there. And so I started doing degree checks and I ended up doing most of them for the office. Wow. And that's when it started dawning on me. Oh, not only do I enjoy this, but I'm pretty good at it. And, and so they just kept funneling me more towards that role in that dean's office. Um, and so when I graduated, um, I applied for a position as the accountant in the School of Architecture there at U of A. And so I became the accountant when I was a, applying for and hired for the job, the accounting job there. Um, well, I had a new dean. He had come from Auburn. And this is also weird that, you know, Arkansas, a lot of things are tied to sports there. So <laughs> he had come from Auburn. Uh, Arkansas had just joined the SEC. So he strangely had a lot of clout there and everything. And um, so, um, you know, he was the one that suggested I take this position. Once I got the position, oh my God. I mean, like it once again was one of the lowest paying positions at the university. And he put through a thing for me to get paid more significantly more than right. what I was. I mean, I like doubled my salary. Wow. Um, and uh, at Auburn had contacted him and wanted him to come back and be the dean of the School of Design at Auburn. And that's where he had graduated. He's from Alabama, blah, blah, blah. And so he interviewed and um, got that position. And I, you know, Karen, my good friend that we had laughed all through my interview and everything like that, or when I was doing the Excel stuff. And I had told him that when he left, that we were leaving, that we just couldn't, you know, imagine being in those, that area without him being the leader. And so when he left at that time, I had sort of been dating this guy and he was a musician, very talented and everything. And uh, we were becoming somewhat serious. And so he found a position at, in Dallas, a gentleman who had been with Second City, Upright Citizens Brigade, um, every comic, you know, pillar that you could think of was opening a comedy club in Dallas and needed a music director. Mm. And so we drove down and he had an audition. And within two days after that, um, he got the word that they wanted to hire him. My friends were like, you're never going to leave Arkansas and everything. And my brother and sister had left Arkansas, you know, when they were just out of high school and everything and been gone. And I had been there with mom and dad and everything. And even when I went to college, I was only 30 miles away from them at any given mm. point in time and everything. So, uh, but by then my brother and sister had moved back and I was like, oh, it's my turn. Oh, okay. And so y'all take care of them and everything. So anyway, uh, we moved to Dallas. And so I was sort of like, oh, well, you know, he's really sort of made it. So I'm going to manage his career. <laughs> so, so I didn't get a job. Uh, well, you're an official talent manager. Okay. Right, exactly. And because he was composing a lot of original music and you know, I was trying to learn more about that and how to make that work and everything. Like one of the things I never was able to get done was that, you know, at that time Weather Channel was playing a lot of just background music and I thought his music was perfect for that and so I was trying to get in touch with them, but just didn't know how to navigate all of that part of it and everything. So mm -hmm. anyway, two years into this, the club closes. Oh, no. And so he has no job. I don't have a job. And so I went immediately to, uh, wanted to work for Dallas Area Transit. That when I got there, I was like, because I love trains. I've loved trains all my life. My father and I 
shared that in common. And uh, he sort of gave me that love. And so I thought, oh, I'll work for DART. And I was very close to having a position there, but didn't get one. So I thought, well, education, let's do that. So went to Dallas County Community College and was hired there as a transcript evaluator. And uh, they were just sort of pulling, you know, they have a number of different campuses and they had just made the decision to pull some of the administrative portions of the experience at Dallas County Community College into a central office. They had the district office was downtown Dallas. And so they were pulling some of these services in there. And part of that was sort of, you know, all the academic policy things were sort of coming under that umbrella downtown. And so review of transfer work from other institutions and transcripts and everything was consolidated to this area. And I got hired by this woman that I just loved as well and had a great team of people I worked with. We were just in the basement. We just sat at computers every day going through student transcripts and um, evaluating them and putting that information into Dallas County Community College uh, technical system so that people could pull up information and everything like that. My partner at the time had still been hanging out with all these comics in Dallas and everything. And so some of them had come up with this plan of opening their own club. And they had sort of done the research of like where to put the club and the rents and everything like that. And but when it would come to the point where it was really to, you know, like, OK, let's make the decision and do it. No one would do it. He came to me and said, so we have all the talent side. We have all the stuff figured out, but none of us are business people, obviously, because we're so great. And would you be interested in handling that side of it for us? And so I thought about that for a long time. And I was like, eh, I guess I'll do that. And uh, so we opened a comedy club. And I mean, we did it up big. She, we opened, you know, we got, we rented this place. They had, like I said, found all these things. In the, and so the space was in the West End district of Dallas. It was very feasible because that area was in transition at the time. So we had no long-term lease. And that meant that we got the lease was very uh, low cost. It was like 10% of our total gross or something like that. Okay. And so, um, so we were able to pay comics and that made us super popular. Ah, and okay. so I was working at Dallas County Community College. Then I was running this club, running a club now, mind you, we didn't have any bank loans or anything. I just had some extra money uh, that my family had started uh, distributing because my mother passed away my first year in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And so my dad was starting to like get things in order. And so he, so I had this little nest egg. And so I took that and opened this club and um, on opening night. And we literally sat up, you know, we didn't get home to like two, the club closed down at like midnight, a little after midnight. And um, so by the time we got things cleaned up and got home, it was close to three o'clock. And then we were like, oh, the papers are going to come out soon. And we're like, we're going to stay up until the paper comes out and read the reviews. I felt like I was on, like I was on Broadway or something <laughs> like that. And so the Dallas Morning News, and so we were joking, you know, like, well, why would they even review us and everything? And the Dallas Morning News did. And the um, Observer there, the paper that's sort of similar to the Chronicle here and, you know, one of those underground newspapers that, and uh, they had people there as well, but the Dallas Morning News said, you know, in the often overheated, or uh, yeah, I think it was overheated, I think, or is what the term they used, West End, 
this club, you know, was very simple. They were talking about the decorations. Who knew that they would even talk about the, <laughs> the core of the club? You know, that was what they dwelt on a lot at the beginning. And they were talking about how understated it was and everything. Let me tell you, friend, it was painted all black on the inside because black was the cheapest paint that we could buy. <laughs> And they were going about this like this was such a conscious design decision right. and everything like that. We never told them. No, we were poor. <laughs> we're painting it said the cheapest paint is black paint. Get it? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so anyway, and then they got to the comedy and they were like, oh my god, this is a thing. Okay. And so it took off. I mean, we were stunned, but we had a family show. Uh, like at six or seven, seven, I think in the evening, 7.30ish. And it was comedy sports, which was a national franchise. And it was a family oriented thing where two teams competed against each other in a, uh, that comp competition format. And then after that, we had sketch, a couple of sketch shows, and then uh, we would have stand up as well. So we did all three forms of comedy, which no what one, yeah, still today, that's wow. very easy to see that. And so, man, you talk about talented people. Yeah, there but, were so many talented people in but Dallas. You are a talented person, but you're um, a talented person that you had to coordinate all of this stuff, like to coordinate just one type of comedy. You coordinated three in one space in one night. That's, that's no small feat too. Well, thank you very much. And the city responded to it. And we just had, I mean... It was very, you know, because it's like that typical story about owning your own business. I mean, I just remember we didn't even have, you know, like you would get a drink and people would use those, you know, things to boo the soda or the cola or whatever. No, we, I would go to Sam's and I would load case after case of soda and water and everything into the car and then take it down there by myself. Wow. I mean, there was no one else. We had no employees at the time other than a, a, we did hire a bartender who ended up sort of being an assistant manager for us who was also very great. But then he entered the funniest person in Dallas contest at one point and won. So um, I mean, was, was congratulations, but dang it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and because we put the contest on and who knew that he, like I said, all these people just came out of the woodwork uh, that were just amazing. But yes, it was a lot. I mean, it was one of those things that was like, oh, if I don't feel like going, that doesn't work. Anyway, um, had the club for uh, two and a half years, I think, total. We put on the first Dallas, the inaugural Dallas Comedy Festival. Uh, we had 62 shows over three days. We had an educational component where Del Close, who is like one of the, you know, she runs, I believe it's comedy or improv Olympics in Chicago, has written like what was considered the Bible of comedy, everything. She came and taught classes. So wow. we had groups coming from all over the United States to take part in those courses and, and the educational part of it, plus the, you know, performing and everything. Um, so 15,000 people attended over those three days. Wow. And that was the one that was the big coordination. It was like a, 
I'll say it now, sort of a nightmare, but at the time <laughs> I was so deep into it, I didn't realize it, but it was like, you know, it was all we could do to just sort of do our little thing. Now we had like five venues that we had people in and had to have cash registers, people working, bartenders for wow. all of this and everything. It was just like, uh, wow. but we did it. And uh, we got written up in Vanity Fair uh, before we were included in their month calendar of what was going on that month. And they said, what? be sure to catch the, the Dallas Morning News did an like their little weekend section, the pullout section of entertainment in their paper. We were featured in that as well and everything. It was just like, now that I think about it, I hadn't even really thought about it that much. It was yeah. like, wow, yeah. that was really cool. Yeah, you're, um, kind, of a, you're kind of a badass. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so in the course of doing this, Esther's Follies here in Austin, which, uh, you know, has been here for not as long as Saturday Night Live, maybe longer, at least 40 something years, I know. Wow. I mean, it's like a vaudeville show. There's comedy, magic and music. And and so uh, the people that own that um, somehow got word about my partner, you know, doing all this music and everything and, and brought him, asked if he would come down and watch their show. And there was a specific piece of music that they wanted. And they said, you know, come down and see some shows. And then I think you'll be able to write this for us and everything. And so, you know, he wrote this music for them. They absolutely loved it. Kept asking him to do other things. And so it became very clear that they really wanted him as their musical director. And so I mm. told him, I said, so if, you know, you're ever in the room alone with them and they ask you, you know, if you want to do this, I mean, first of all, do you want to do it? And he goes, oh yeah, I'd be open to that. And I said, well, you know, if they ever bring it up and I'm not there, please go ahead and accept. That's not a problem at all. Mm. As the more we came down here, I was like, what the heck have we been doing in Dallas the whole time? I had come to Austin many times before for football games. Imagine of, that. Of and, <laughs> Shocker. University of Arkansas played Texas. But anyway, um, it was like, oh yeah, Austin. It just felt so much more like home. Dallas, I mean, obviously we had this great experience there. I met so many wonderful people that are still friends, but it was just so pretentious. And it just mm. was, you know, coming from a little town in Arkansas, it just was, you know, I just remember, you know, like where I lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas, you could be in the middle of nowhere in 15 minutes. You could get in your car, drive out of town, and you go out in a forest. I mean, literally in the middle of nowhere with no one around. If I drove 15 minutes in Dallas, I was still surrounded by millions of people. And after a while, that started wearing on me. I was really surprised at that because I had partied in Dallas when I was in college. And when I was having my downward spiral, Dallas was one of the places I went to party. I loved Dallas. and uh, But when I lived there, it was a different experience. So anyway... I was like, yeah, I'll take the job in Austin if they offer it. And so they did. And so I, he came down like in November after he accepted that job. And then I moved down January of 2006 and uh, we kept the club in Dallas open. You got gentrified. Yes, we did. <laughs> and so we looked all around and tried to find another space that, you know, and because of all this, everything was just not affordable. Well, I just pulled the plug on it. I mean, I guess we could have gone a month or so more, not a whole lot. One of those things about if I had known this before I made the decision, because, you know, there were still bills outstanding and everything, and I could have mm. like stopped some things, but I was just like, oh, freaking out, pulled the plug. 
packed everything up and moved to Austin. And um, Esther's gave me a job there for a while. But it was more because my partner was there. And then I found, you know, at one point I could tell, okay, they're just making things up for me to do. Ah, okay. And so, and it wasn't paying very much because I was hourly. And so since they didn't have a permanent position, I was only getting a few hours. And it was like, ah, eh, we can't really live on this. Whew, you made it through part one with my former supervisor friend manager Bob Pointer and it's a lot he went through a lot growing up in Arkansas but I think you can tell pretty strongly how his family really laid a strong foundation in him not only professionally but personally so the next half is talking about his career in higher education and I wanted to set a little groundwork, a little foundation here for people that may not work in higher education, specifically people that don't work as academic advisors. So I want to talk a little bit about what our role is um, because you're going to sense maybe a tone in Rob. Um, and this is where he starts talking about some of his frustrations and challenges with the university. Um, so I want y'all to understand that this comes from a real place and this isn't the words of a man who's bitter or who's just unhappy for the sake of being unhappy. He's somebody that gave 10,000% to the university, to the students, to the department, to everything. And I think that's just the nature when you work at a university, um, or at least for those of us on the academic side that, you know, there's the hope that what you're doing is making a difference not only with the students but also making a difference with the university and with any organization there's there's that gap between the people who are doing the work and the people that are creating the policy for the people that are doing the work and oftentimes the people who aren't doing the work don't understand when they make changes how that changes how those changes affect everything and in Rob's role that he had as my manager, supervisor, friend, boss, he was kind of that voice between us as a staff or all of the students to the leadership of um, not only department, but also to faculty and things like that. So he had a pretty high role where he was able to impact um, policy and change. And, and he really was that voice for the staff and the students to the policymakers and to the faculty and to the people who frankly were at a higher pay range than any of us that were at the staff level and so you're going to hear a, a little bit of a shift in his voice as you know he's worked in this space for 33 years and as much as he loved it i think he just got really tired um so let me talk a little bit about the role of an academic advisor. So that was the role that I had when Rob was my manager. And so we were in a department, it was just him and I, and we had about, ooh, what was our caseload? I would have to say like 800 students. Um, so between the two of us, we were the only two advisors for about 800 or so students. And what that means is when you're registering for classes at the beginning of the year, um, we 
Rob, as my manager, had to manage the enrollment of the courses. So he would talk to the faculty about who's teaching what for the semester, but then would have to manage the class sizes and would have to talk to the scheduler about getting the right classes in the right rooms. Um, so there's more to the academic advisor role than just talking to students about their grades. But that would be the next piece. Once you manage with the faculty, the class schedule, what the degree looks like, then and he would um, communicate that to me as his academic advisor, and then we would work with students during scheduling. So mind you, there's two of us seeing about 800 and 800, 850 students at the time. And that meant we had to see about 400 students um, to talk to everything about how are they doing for graduation, if they fail the class, how does that affect their class schedule, if they're coming in as new students, setting up that schedule. Um, yeah, and at, and at the university we're at, the students are really smart, and they come from places where they were used to being given whatever they needed. And so a lot of times when they would come to us and say, hey, I need this class because I want to graduate, quote unquote, on time. For some reason, the university decided to push um, this four-year graduation. And so because of the way our major was set up, they had to take courses in a specific order. And if you got out of order, that affected your ability to graduate in four years. So the university had the expectation that students were going to graduate in four years. Students had that expectation, but then and Rob and I were in the middle of, well, yeah, sometimes that can happen. And here's the course of action when it doesn't. So yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting space to be in. I think we were busy kind of all year round. You know, we're not only busy during registration when students are signing up for classes for the next semester. After registration, there's, okay, everybody wants to shuffle around the classes and you've got to deal with numbers and space and all of that. But then also we were working for the department. So when it came to doing outreach and recruitment of prospective students and families, we were responsible for that too. Um, you'll hear Rob talk about a computer science ambassador program that I developed. And that mainly came out of a need that Rob and I just did not have the time to see the 400 or the 850 students we both had on top of the families that were wanting tours and things. So some of that came out of a need and some of that came out of, um, you know, a way for us to kind of develop our students. We were, this program gave them the opportunity to develop some of their social skills where they got to talk to people and give tours and interact with families and respond to emails and things like that. So um, I'm proud of the time that we had together. But it was a challenge, like even getting that program that was really benefiting not only us, but the department and the students, it was a fight. Like we had to fight somebody in the department to allow us to get office space for these students or to get an email for these students, to get t-shirts for these students, um, to get money to train the students. Like everything was a battle. And as you can see, 12 years later, the program still persist, which means it was good, it was appreciated, but the fact that we had to fight to get this done is kind of a challenge of, of the staff, um, particularly with academic advisors. So you'll hear a little bit of frustration there. Um, he's going to talk about his experience at the University of Texas. I would say in my experience, I've worked at several universities, I would say no university is perfect. I think, again, when you've got that gap between the people that create policy and the people that implement the policy, um, 
that there's going to be frustration there. And I have yet to work at a company that has a hundred percent right. So please don't take this as a slam against the university. This is one man's experience. It's a man that I trust, but it is one person's experience. So hopefully that helps give a little bit of context as we jump into part two of our interview with Rob Pointer. So back to education and I went to UT. And so it's so weird. This woman had come to, that was head of NACADA, you know, our professional organization when uh, the National Academic Advising uh, Association. Um, and she had come to the U of A campus because UT was the first, one of the first two institutions that actually started a campus-wide organization, you know, locally for uh, academic advisors. Mm. They had this national organization, but and it was just as things were starting to trend away from faculty advising to professional advisors. Uh, so I had met her before. And at many of these conferences, she would always joke about, you know, you need to come to UT and work. And I was like, you know, because Arkansas, if you're raised in Arkansas, you hate UT. That's <laughs> the way they just drill that into you. And I just would look at her and laugh and go, well, that will never happen. I can assure you of that. And uh, then she came and did this training, uh, you know, when we had a regional conference, uh, I was one of the leaders on that campus uh, for this organization. We were starting to build, you know, professional advising on the campus and everything. And she came and she reiterated, you know, you have got to come to work for UT. And I was just said the same thing. Well, I went up and met with her. <laughs> and so let me tell you, I heard about that. Oh, I thought you would never come <laughs> She picked up the phone and called a guy over in natural sciences where you and I worked and said, so this guy, someone's going to apply for a job and they're going to look way overqualified, but you need to talk to me. Okay. He swore and she swore that that was not where the deal was made or anything like that. But I just, she was president, you know, had been president of the national organization a couple of times. And so, um, he was very involved on the national level as well. So I, it didn't hurt me. It may not have been the reason, but uh, the admin um, in natural sciences that was, uh, you know, in the student services area called me and said, so uh, have you got some time? I need to talk to you about something. And I was like, yeah. And she said, so we went to have coffee and she said, so there's going to be a change in computer science. And you and I, weren't you, weren't I your mentor through Nakata when you first started at UT? Because we knew each other before. Yep. And she said, so they're, you know, going to get a new coordinator for advising in computer science. And the college wants you to do that because you've had experience of leading, you know, advising centers before and everything. And you've had your own business. And so you can manage things and and so I just remember that day of going in and you sitting at that table and all the people that were in the leadership in computer science. And that's when we met. Yeah. And, uh, and so then, you know, we did our stint. You left me. <laughs> I know. Science. I regret it. But I'm so happy because obviously you found your path and everything. So that was great. And then I was there for quite some time. And then the same admin called me one day and said, so have you got some time? I need to talk to you about something. I tease her about every great thing that happened to me at UT started with her calling and saying, have you got some time? I need to talk to you about something. So and that's the fourth, that's the fourth woman in your life that changed your life. Yes, that is actually very true. I hadn't thought about that. Thank you. Um, and so yeah, um, I went and talked to them and apparently they were having some issues in the bioscience area. It was just biology at the time. 
and then after I took over, they said that, you know, we want you to go over and sort of take over this thing and see if you can change the, the culture over there. And uh, so at the time it was just biology, it was the School of Biological Sciences, but right after I took the position, they broke up. Uh, there was a huge divorce in chemistry. The biochem people left the chemistry department and came to biology. And then the School of uh, Biological Sciences was dissolved and the neurobiology area became the Department of Neuroscience. So I was overseeing biology, uh, biochemistry and neuroscience. Uh, so we had about 5,500 students that we took care of. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, How many advisors were you supervising? So uh, we had six of us total, including myself. Okay. Uh, huge caseloads, which when I left was still an issue. I have heard through the grapevine that they are, they have given permission for them to hire a, a new advisor, Good. which I hope because uh, it's just, it's just too many people. I mean, we had about, when I got there, we had 650 people on our caseloads and to do what the college wanted and what you need to do if you're helping students, that's just not possible to do it with yeah. that many people. Yeah. We got it down to around 550 people, but that was with me seeing the same number of people that everyone else did. And most coordinators uh, only so, saw like 200 people because they had all these admin responsibilities as well, all these uh, management responsibilities. And so, um, but I didn't really find that to be difficult. Um, because you know me, I never left my desk. I'd work all through lunch and everything like that. Uh -huh. <laughs> I wouldn't let my team do that, but I was doing it, working, you know, late at night and everything like that. And, and so it was a really great experience as well. Um, and uh, in terms of the faculty and the department chairs I worked with and everything. And so so you were in higher education for over 30 years. I thought it was 20, but now I found out it's 30. Um, what did you love about the field? What did you find challenging? And what do you think will be the future of it? Uh, excellent question. Um, so I love, and I think it's because, as I've mentioned, so many people helped me because, you know, anyone that denies that you can do all these things on your own, I don't care if you have billions of dollars, you don't do things on your own. There are people in your life that help you. And so I had been helped tremendously and I had consciously made the decision, you know, whenever I was working with students that I was gonna pay that forward. And so the thing I loved most was the one-on-one -on -one relationship with students and helping them navigate, you know, if people came in really depressed and everything, I didn't really tell my story a whole lot Early on in advising, I would tell it too many times. And then I realized, no, it's not about me. It's about them. And But there would be times when people would come in and they'd be really down and everything. And I'd say, oh, you think you're going through a lot. <laughs> and you are. I understand that. But let me tell. And then, you know, by the time I got finished, they were like, dang. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nowhere near what you, you know. And so they would they would find comfort in the fact that yeah, it could have been worse. And, and a lot of times, you know, the, the whole reason of telling that story was like, look, you can get through this. You can do this. You have the ability to do this. You're an incredibly intelligent person. You got into UT. I mean, UT, unlike the University of Arkansas, is very selective in admissions because 
so many, the last uh, application cycle, so they have roughly 11,000, 10 to 11,000 spots in their freshman class each year. Mm-hmm. And so the last cycle that I was participating in with admissions, which I believe was, was the fall of 2021, yes, 60,000 people applied for those 11,000 positions. Night. Oh my goodness. So it's very selective at UT. Um, it's probably the closest to being a public private school that there is, mm. uh, which has it's ups and downs. Um, but anyway, that's the part I love the most was, and also being in an educational environment. I mean, after my, you know, sort of circuitous uh, navigation through education itself and everything, just being around people because, you know, when we were in computer science, I mean, I did find that to be for some reason, a little bit more intuitive to me. I mean, I could sit there and listen to things and, and in my mind, I was like, okay, I get that. I mean, on a very basic layperson's level, but it's like, okay, um, biology, no. I mean, I had <laughs> biology. I took biology when I was in college and I did very well, but I mean, it was, they were speaking another language to me. And over the time I got very familiar with what was going on and I could understand some things. And there was one department chair in particular, the biochem department chair that took me under her wing that would actually give me a lot of information, detailed information about the discipline itself. So I started learning about things like that. And that friendship was very valuable because in the fall of 2019, as the pandemic was on the horizon, uh, we started having conversations about this and her talking me through that and giving me links to Zoom meetings where, you know, Jason, that was involved in development of the Pfizer vaccine was working in the building next to mine. Wow. So he would do these lectures about, you know, what, what coronavirus was, why was it called coronavirus, blah, 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 which I found, you know, when she sent me the link for this first conference that he was having, I was like, this is ridiculous. No, it's going to be way over my head. She goes, no, he's really good about putting it in terms. I think you're going to really understand it and you're really going to enjoy it. And oh my God, she was like, so it was like me and 350 scientists from around the United States. You're like, Zoom call. of course, I wasn't saying anything. I was just listening, but it was, yeah, it was so interesting. And a lot of the panic that was happening, I didn't have because she said, this is what's going to happen. It is going to race around the world at a breakneck speed, blah, 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 blah. I mean, and every time she would say something within two to three weeks, it would play out exactly Mm. that way. So early on, I was like, okay, she knows what she's talking about. And never was she like panicked or anything. Right. Um, And so I was like, okay, I understand this. And um, in terms of like, she's not panicked and, you know, there's a way out of this. And so that was very helpful. But anyway, that one-on-one relationship with students, working with people in these different fields and their kindness to sort of show me their fields and share that with me and everything, absolutely love that part of it. Um, And then the most challenging part for me is the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many things, and I have to be very honest, that's one of the reasons that I retired early Mm -hmm. is because, you know, with the pandemic sort of just, it took a bad situation and made it worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bureaucracy at UT had started stalling and was just not responsive to student needs. And I had been advocating for students in my team forever and ever. 
and then the pandemic hit and it really exposed the areas that we knew as advisors were issues right and then ut's response to resolving or not resolving the issues but their response of hearing that and taking no action well they would take action but it was in a totally different realm that needed no action at all and was missing the mark oh my god by miles And then trying to help them understand, you know, this is what's going on. And why do we know this? Why do the 400 advisors on this campus know this? Because we are talking, we are having conversations with students on a daily basis. And we know how they're experiencing this. You're assuming that they're going through this in the same way that you are. And may we remind you, faculty members are making around $450,000 a year and administrators at this institution are making in the millions. Your experience and your designation of things that you think are happening are not what's happening on the student level. Amen. And not only on the student level, but on the employee level. I had advisors that had master's degrees that started at $36,000 and were working multiple jobs to pay their rent or living with roommates as adults mm-hmm. because UT wouldn't pay them what they were worth. Uh, You cannot live in Austin, Texas for $36,000 a year. And that's still going on right now, may I add. And so that was the most challenging part. And I probably did not approach that in the best way. I approached it from the bull in the china closet way of just like, I was very aggressive and very contentious about a lot of things. I wasn't at first. I tried to build consensus and everything. And then when it was clear to me, they're not listening at all. Then I just felt, okay, I'll just be a pain. I'm going to be the thorn in your side (laughs) so that you just can't do this stuff and think that it's okay. You're going to do it. You're not going to listen to the 400 people that have the most expertise in all these things that you're trying to solve right now that you will not even ask us, much less include any of us on a committee because we're not faculty members because Mm. the faculty run the institution. And while I found the faculty, as I said, very wonderful on an individual level, collectively, they were just ostriches with their head in the sand. And so I just became very contentious about everything yeah and so that was my largest challenge and then um, I think the future of higher ed I was at one point I thought you know when we started digitizing everything and I was like so why did it take a pandemic for an institution as progressive as UT to digitize things I mean we were living in a digital age already and it was like when we first got DocuSign and students were, you know, there were some forms, as you may recall, that you had to literally go to five different offices and get signatures on. Yep. And now you could just send it through DocuSign. And it was like, why were we making people walk to five different offices from one end of campus to the other in Austin heat? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this is just ridiculous. And then it was like, oh my God, why have we not done this all along? Right. So, you know, our office was one of the first ones to just really jump on that and not only do the things that we needed to have to get through the first few weeks of the pandemic, we just started wholesale moving everything to gi- digital, um, you know, versions and and did that. And, and just as a little peek into their thinking of the administration, once they started bringing people back on campus, they wanted to go back to paper forms. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it's like, are you kidding me? That literally is like taking a step backwards. So at that point, I realized 
see, I initially thought, oh, UT, great institution. There are some really good things going on here. We're going to take this run with it. We're going to be one of the people out in front leading, saying, here's the changing face of education, and this is what we're going to do about it, and this is how we're going to make it even better and everything. No. Yeah. They dropped the ball. They didn't do things, and I found there were people running offices that were in charge of things that they had no idea what the policies were that their own office had put down, because as an advisor, you have to know everything about everything. Mm -hmm. And and the reactions of people in leadership in those offices when we told them, so you know when you change this, it impacts these 50 things. And they would be like, oh. And I was like, and I was like, in my mind thinking, you're kidding me. You're in charge of this and you had no idea about this. So I thought that we were going to be able to really make a, a big change and, and impact higher ed. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. I feel personally that if some of these changes aren't made, and I can go into detail about some of them if you want, but if some of these changes aren't made, these huge brick and mortar institutions are going to fall out of popularity. Mm-hmm. Students are so, kids are really smart. Yep. There's kids at UT. I mean, it's like I would tell people sometimes when it came was the appropriate time, I'd say, so here's the problem with that idea is you have admitted incredibly smart people into this institution and they're going to see through that and they're going to know that you are screwing them over and they're not going to stand for that. Yep. And that started playing out in my meetings and in my groups, you know, in the, the first uh, year interest groups where we, you know, have the 20, 25 students that we mentor in their first semester at college, helping them make that transition and everything. It came up organically on a Zoom meeting in that first fall where we had Zoom courses. Um, Someone said, you know, these University of Phoenix students, they were ahead of the curve. I mean, they know that you don't have to attend a college, you know, and, and be there. You can get all the information you need online and, you know, whether it's a, a well-respected degree or not, it doesn't matter because we'll have the information. And so many of them wanted, you know, to go on to med school or to go into tech or whatever. Even the biochem, biology, and neuroscience students wanted to go into tech, mm-hmm. you know, because at UT we had, because you and I did such a great job. I just remember, you know, in that interview to sort of a tangent again, you know, or actually when we first got started, I asked, you know, the department chair, what were the top three priorities? And the first one he listed was, you know, to grow the enrollment. We had 825 students. And I just remember when we hit 2,500 students, he's like, okay, could y'all stop? (laughs) (laughs) No. I I just remember us getting up and going to those meetings in the, you know, the ballroom and the union, you know, we were there at 730 in the morning talking to people and telling them about computer science and you know, no one really even knew about it. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, after the dot-com thing, everybody treated it like a pariah and everything. Mm-hmm. And you and I definitely built awareness of that. Yeah. But anyway, it was like, um, yeah, I just thought that, uh, I just thought that we could do better. And I just think that students are understanding that they don't have to use traditional methods to get the information they need to be successful. So I think our higher ed, it's a watershed moment for higher ed. And even if we go back in person and there's never any, you know, huge issues like a pandemic again, I think that seeds have been planted. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen five, 10 years, but there is going to be, I think, a trend going away from the traditional education part because the institutions are not recognizing their opportunity. I mean, UT could be involved in that and and they're doing some things 
but not out of a vision. It was more of a reactive response and then sort of like, oh, well, we can sort of half-ass do this a little bit after the pandemic's over. But like I said, they're not focusing on, we could make this really great. And so I just, you know, I just, yeah. Yep. yeah, so. So many things. Number one, perfectly well said. Yeah, I think the, one of the reasons that I left when I left was, I think that was a year when um, there was some big budget thing and they froze our salaries. And then we had to like write a letter to the president about why we thought our jobs were mission critical to the university. And I was like, wait, so I have to explain to you why I as an academic advisor is important to the university. Ooh, this is not a good sign. I'm out. So <laughs> honestly, that that's why I left. Cause I was like, why, what? That doesn't make any sense that you don't think my position that I'm required to have a degree to hold at a degree at an institution that confers degrees you don't think my position is valuable. So I was like, all right, <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> so that's why I left, because I loved you and I loved working for you. And I think that, or with you, for you, whatever. And I think that what you see as a bull in a China shop for me as your um, supervisee, I felt was like, just like the biggest advocacy for me. And I felt like we were having so many challenges and we were, we were facing so many things and we had so many ideas because we were in the trenches that you were that person that we could always rely on that would take that message to the right people. So whether you had to fight or break China to get it heard, like us as your staff really appreciate it because it made our lives easier. And because ultimately we were fighting for the students. We wanted the students to have a really good, valuable experience and because we weren't the football team or the marching band this is where we could affect <laughs> their experience on campus so no I I for me I loved having you around and I loved working for you and I, I feel like as your former supervisee I would describe your leadership style as kind of a servant leader like somebody who attempts to promote innovation, empower your employees and develop leadership qualities in others. So do you think you cultivated this style intentionally or is that just kind of who you are at your core? Well, I think that goes back to my mom and dad as well. I mean, my mother always was embarrassed that she had an eighth grade education, but if she didn't tell you that, you would have never known it. She, mm. you know, she worked at home and everything but she was a great organizer and was very intelligent. And so um, after I went to college or after, yeah, after I went to college, she opened a business on her own that was very successful and, you know, and did other things uh, that just showed me, wow. I mean, and so she sort of thought out of the box and she never took no for an answer in terms of like, yeah, she may not have had a formal education, but she had the you know, my father graduated from high school and then went on to, through a special program, he didn't have a college degree per se, but they were looking for ministers. And so he actually ended up going to one of the best, he went to Perkins School of Theology at wow. SMU, which is like one of the renowned programs in the United States. And, you know, he was able to go there because they were looking for ministers and everything. So I think that their courage was one of the factors also that just fighting for the right thing. I mean, they instilled that in me from the very beginning that, you know, if you're fighting for the right thing, then, then you just fight on and, um, or advocating, I shall say, for the right <laughs> thing. And so I think that 
that helped me understand, okay, so this is sort of how you do it. And then when I started working with teams and everything like that, uh, I already had the passion for doing the right thing, like you mentioned, for the students. We were always advocating for them because early on in my career, I found if I focus on them and make sure they're okay, everything works out for me. That's noticed, and I get promotions. I get you know, pay increases. I think that's one of the reasons that they would come to me and say, hey, and you know, my father was placed in situations where there was a lot of you know, unrest in a, in a congregation or something like that. And I mean, that was his deal. The, the organization he worked for knew he was really good at that. And so they would send him to places that were like a mess and he would straighten it out. So I observed that. I observed his administrative skills. I observed my mother's ability to get things happen in her. Um, oh man, she was the sweetest person you've ever met. I mean, she did not meet a stranger and she just, you know, was just a caring person. And all this came together. You know, I just lived in a household where I saw this play out again and again and again. So I think it was just deeply ingrained in me that one, if I'm supposed to be taking care of people, you know, students in this case, then I need to be taking care of them. And then also, when I became a supervisor, it was like, well, the team falls in the same category. I mean, I'm the person that I need to make sure they have the resources that they need to be successful in their mind and to do what they're supposed to do and everything like that. And I just was always amazed at people that would complain about, you know, people leaving their team and, and, you know, like, oh, I just got to watch this person. I got to watch this person. And I was like, that's just silly to me. That's why you have an interview process. I mean, I think that if you're good with people in the course of an interview, you can sort of get a glimpse of someone's personality. Now, sometimes, you know, things work out a little differently on either way, good and bad. But on the whole, it's like, why do you hire those people that you're concerned about that you have to stand over their shoulder? And why would you think you standing over their shoulder is going to make any difference? I mean, if they're that bad to begin with, anything you do, right. they're going to be pissed because you're standing over their shoulder, even if they're doing it incorrectly. Mm -hmm. That's not going to work. I just always learned or you know, found out in this process that if I think a lot of people are always afraid to hire people smarter than themselves as well. Mm -hmm. And I love hiring people smarter than myself. One, it's a great team. I don't have all the answers. I listen to things and I can put things together and provide resources to people and everything. But wow, when you have a team that is not afraid to speak what they're thinking and knows that their ideas are going to be given due process in terms of consideration and implemented in most cases when people would bring things to my attention, that's the culture you want to build. Not where people are like, oh, my supervisor is going to stand over me or where the supervisor is like, well, this person's just not pulling their weight. Well, that's your problem. That's your fault that they're not pulling their weight. First of all, that you hired them. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, you know, it was just the two of us in our advising center. And of course, you had that position beforehand. But uh, in hiring later on, whenever we hired in the School of Biological Sciences, well, and in CS after you left as well, when we started increasing advisors there, the whole team, even the admin person was involved in that interview process because we had established a culture. And with all these people sitting in on the interviews, someone was catching something that someone else's was, someone else was missing. And we were able to make sure the people we hired 
fit into that culture. And that culture was to work above and beyond because you're working for other people, you're working for students and you want that to work well. And you know, I would always tell everyone, this is basically like your own business. You have a caseload of people. We have goals and markers that we're trying to hit in terms of what the college and the university expects. However you get there, as long as we achieve those goals, I don't care if you work two hours a day, if you work 12 hours a day, whatever, as long as we're meeting those goals, that's all I'm focused on. And I'm not going to stand over your shoulder. Who am I to know what best way it is for you to accomplish those things? So this is like your own business. You have these people that you have to take care of. And as long as they're taken care of and they're not contacting me saying, I'm not being taken care of the college. They're contacting the college and saying that. And then the college contacts me and says that to me. As long as that's not happening. And then, of course, we got really big in data collection. And it was very clear to see we were exceeding the goals of the college and everything. So we put together these teams that were amazing. And they were amazing because I let people be themselves. Uh, I mean, I didn't want to work under situations. I had had supervisors that were like that. Mm -hmm. And that was not what I wanted to do, but I wanted to take it further, just not being a micromanager. But like, I mean, like I said, I was working with a lot of very intelligent people. And when we sat down to think about things that we could do and solve problems, we came up with some of the best solutions. I mean, yeah, that was a great experience. I love that about higher ed too, because people that work in higher ed in our types of positions, Jen, care about people and care about the students. They don't do it for the money. No. (laughs) Let me tell you, just hearkening back to something you said about, you know, leaving because you had to justify your position. When I left, people were still having to justify their position. The university from the time you left to when I left took no, made no effort to better understand what you brought up. And, And it was like, okay, after this many years, no, I can't do this anymore. I just, I just had work, uh, I, I stayed longer because I thought I could change it and, you know, but it became very clear that I think I impacted a lot of people's lives and that's what was the most important thing for me and I have students I mean, you know, young people are very busy they've got their own things they're focused on everything like that and I just felt so honored and fortunate that so many of them would take time out of their life to come back and still to this day, I had a student hits in uh oh gosh, I can't remember, not Bulgaria, but somewhere in Eastern Europe posted on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago that, you know, he had thanked all the people that helped him through college, you know, his father, his family, da, 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 but he realized 10 years after he graduated that he had not thanked the most important person and listed me. <laughs> and I just, you know, it's those experiences. I certainly didn't do it for that. I did it because I care about people and everything. But when young people took the time to come back and I've got a desk full of thank you notes and everything. I mean, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's really overwhelming. I'm going to teary eye because that's the part I like the most. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just think that, you know, my experiences led me to just be more and more convinced that that was the way to do things. And once I started seeing that there was not hell or high water was not going to stop me from doing it that way. That's for yeah. sure. And, and I hopefully 
hopefully I've relayed to you because I worked for you 12 years ago and we're still in touch after all of these years. Oh my years. God. I uh, know. You've spoiled me for other managers because every, not every, but a lot of managers I've had since I'm like, but that's not how Rob would do it. Like you're doing it wrong. Rob would do it this way. And you know, I had a manager that was super micromanagey and didn't trust me. And it was like, can I give you Rob's number? Like, I feel like what, why don't you trust me? Like I had somebody that trusted, trusted me implicitly and let me create things and let me like, why, why, why does it never be like this? So thank you for that. But also you've ruined me. I can't ever work for anybody else ever again. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for all that I learned from you and for all the wonderful experiences that we had that have led to me to adore you still to this day and, and feel so honored to count you as one of my friends. That's for sure. All right. Sorry. Actually, it's one of my family because we're much closer than friends, I would say. All right. Stop making me cry. Um, <laughs> diversity, equity, and inclusion was something that you did long before there was a title for it. Um, where did this passion come from and how do you see your role as an ally in different spaces? Yeah, I think that that really goes back to my parents again. Uh, you know, they were just so influential in my life. Um, and I think about it sometimes about how I must have been a difficult child to raise because I was this vocal growing up. I was doing all this stuff. I, they were my first people to be, they were the first bureaucracy I dealt with. Anyway, that was instilled early on. Um, when I was less than six years old, one of the first things I remember was the church that we were at, I told you, in Charleston, Arkansas, a very small town. I mean, there was only like a thousand people or so. And so there was you know, the banker, the attorney, and the doctor were very well off, and the rest of us were pretty poor. And, uh, you know, it was just a idyllic community, really. I mean, you know, I just, I, I don't know that those exist anymore. I guess they do, but it was just unreal. I mean, there were all these different denominations, just to put it on a thing I was familiar with. And, and once a year, all the churches would get together and have a service together in one of the churches, even though we had very different beliefs and everything, we could get in the same space and just sort of respect each other and, and just be happy and celebrate and everything like that. And that included the African-American church that was in our community. Um, like I said, we were all very poor. So there wasn't really an economic, uh, you know, separator there in terms of, you know, uh, whites and blacks and everything like that. It was only those two races. I mean, there weren't other uh, races in that town at that time. But I just remember, you know, the black community was sort of out of town. Uh, they did own a lot of land out of town. Um, and so I felt, you know, looking back on that, I felt good. Well, at least they had, you know, land ownership and everything like that. But they sort of were out in the community and kept to themselves. Their church burned down at one point in time. And my father, uh, our youth group, and some other churches in town went out and took a building that was near the church that burned and converted it into a, um, a worship, uh, a place of worship for them. And I mean, I remember that whole process. Um, and my mother and her sister were involved, you know, they went and got the paint and everything, and we were just involved in all this stuff and everything. And so, you know, I was exposed to just hanging out with uh, Black people from early on. Um, and then because of that connection, we became really good friends with a, a Black family. And my father, we had some things that were needing to be done around the house one time. And, uh, and so he asked Victoria, she was sort of the matriarch of the Black community entirely, but 
certainly uh, was the one that we were closest to. And, and um, so there were a lot of things that we needed to be done. She had a number of sons and there was a lot of heavy lifting that needed to be done. My father had back issues and everything. He was like, well, you know, I'll pay for y'all to come over and help with this and everything. Is that something you would be interested in? She said, oh yeah, I'll, I'll bring my sons and we'll come over and everything. And so the day arrived where they were coming over and we were working really hard and everything. And my mom was fixing lunch for us and everything. And, and so uh, it came time to eat and she said, okay, everyone, let's come in and get our plates and everything we're going to eat. And, uh, and so I was sitting at the table because I was like, between four and six, I guess, probably closer to six, I guess. And so I was sitting there at the table and my mom had her back turned and was doing something in the kitchen there. And then she turned around and there was no one in the kitchen except myself. And she was like, she looked at me, she goes, well, where did everyone go? And I said, well, they're out on the back porch. And uh, so she went out there and Victoria was the woman's name. And she said, Victoria, what are y'all doing out here? And she said, oh, well, we can't eat in the house at the same table as you. And my mother looked at her and these were her words, the minister's wife, the hell you can <laughs> and get inside of my house right now. And they came in and we sat and we laughed and talked and everything. And so it's just, once again, that was the environment that I grew up in. So I don't ever recall having to make a conscious decision to behave that way. And so I just have always, you know, I've always just seen how the talent of people, their love, their, you know, worthiness, their, I mean, this, all those things are the things I say. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say I don't see color because that's not a good thing. I've learned a lot in the last few years reading a lot of different books, you know, white fragility being one of those and everything and learning that it's my responsibility to understand these things and correct them and certainly call out people in my community that are not doing the right thing. And so uh, I am very much more aware of that now in terms of my responsibility with that. But in terms of living my life, that's just been part of it for my entire life. I mm. mean, and I do believe it's because my mother and father showed me that example. I mean, there was just never any type of separation. And let me tell you, I moved I'm an old person. So, I mean, we're talking, uh, first of all, in that little bitty town, there was no segregation. I mean, they talk about Little Rock being the first school that was integrated in, in Arkansas, and it was not. I mean, and there is historical information about this, that um, Blacks and whites were going to school together in Charleston, Arkansas, way before the Little Rock Central situation happened. And there was no big deal about it or anything. It was just like, well, here's the school. Let's all go to school. Right. And my dad was an assistant principal there uh, for part of the time. And so it was just like that. And then we moved from that idyllic community to Little Rock. And let me tell you, it was not the same way there. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were people, as we're all aware, that would go to great lengths to make people's lives miserable for reasons that were oh, and still are just beyond my comprehension right and um and make me so embarrassed and ashamed of the way people behave um so i just i just never had there was just never another way i mean it was just always that way um, and then, you know, obviously I've championed those situations on college campuses. And when, it, you know, when this became a thing, then, uh, you know, 
the the one thing that I'm sort of concerned about like right now is because I did attend a conference where Angela Davis spoke and she said, you know, one thing that we have to be very careful of is that everyone feels really good about creating these divisions of diversity and, you know, inclusion and everything like that. But she said, the danger I see is that it's sort of an eddy outside of the power structure of the university and the university can go, look, we have division, inclusion, you know, diversity and inclusion and all of this and everything, but they're not tied into the power structure. You know, a lot of what I've read is like, we have to be comfortable with vacating leadership roles mm. so that people of color can step into those roles. And the way these things are set up on campuses, that's not what's happening. Mm. It's like, it's its own little thing. And they can hold that up and say, here's what we're doing to address that. But yet there's no plug-in to the power structure of the university. <laughs> in my remaining year, I'm going to stand in these spaces and I am going to be a problem for people because I am not going to let them set aside and think, well, you know, in my heart of hearts, I know we're not doing the right thing, but I'm getting away with it. Now, I called him out on it every time, every time. And I know there was a big sigh of relief that went up from some of these people when I left the University of Texas because I was not going to let them get away with that. And I am astounded that that type of behavior is occurring at that institution this moment while we're having this conversation. Well, I think, and I think it, thank you for sharing that. And I think it's important for that message to come from somebody that looks like you, because if it's me saying it, we're the complainer, what are you complaining about? You're here. You hate it that much. Just leave. And like, it, it, it helps to have somebody that doesn't look like us go, no, this is messed up. <laughs> like it this is, is this up. is messed up and this is happening and this is real and this needs to be addressed. So I, you were always somebody that I, that I could go to as an ally. I think the students felt that way too with the number. I mean, we didn't have a giant population of students of color, but I mean, through the work that Tiffany was doing. Um, and then we had a, I forget the woman's name that was so supportive of the different programs that we had in CS. Um, uh, Patty. Yes, Patty. Thank you. Um, I mean, she started out uh, cold, but when we showed, I mean, you know, cause you set up that incredible ambassadors program, which is the gem of computer science to this day, that's your legacy. Um, but she fought us on that. Remember that? And yes. then like, oh, they're actually really making this work and it's an incredible thing. And now they pour money into it all the time. But that was you. Go ahead, though. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, but that that's the point is that it takes like sometimes it you being an advocate for not only your staff, but just people and and as much as I don't know how, how challenging it is for you to be that person and kind of what repercussions you get from being that person that has to continue to be that bull in that china shop and to speak up but for those of us that can't be that voice and that can't fill those spaces you're making a difference so I know that you're not there anymore and I don't doubt that this is the last anybody will hear from you from a space of advocacy um so thinking about your future what do you see for yourself in the next 10 years well uh that is uh something that I am sorting through right now my church uh worked very closely with uh I attended a church that really felt that the purpose of that faith community was not to sit in a building every Sunday and judge everyone that wasn't doing what they were supposed to be, but to get out and actually engage with people and help people and meet them where they were, wherever that was, whether we worked with the homeless population here a lot, we worked with socioeconomic dis 
advantaged people and everything. And um, anyway, we worked with two organizations, Justice for Our Neighbors, which supplied uh, attorneys legal support for people that were immigrating properly to the United States, but were being, as we know, treated very unfairly. And the Austin Justice Coalition is one of the biggest uh, organizations we supported. And so um, I'm, last week I went to their website and I don't know, I just, I need to go and set up a meeting uh, because I've gotten to the point where, you know, I've sort of gotten through all these things that we were talking about earlier about the decompressing from the experience at UT and sort of finding myself again. And so that's the first thing I want to reach out is to us to Austin Justice Coalition and see if there are volunteer positions there that where they could use my services in whatever capacity they deem, you know, best. But then I look at, you know, the staff and everything and I'm thinking, so yeah, an old white guy is going to fit in really well there. But, but I know, I don't know after hearing you say that, I mean, because I do feel that I can say things and, and um, you know, because ultimately for good or bad, I am a white person and people tend to listen to that for what, I mean, you know, but I say that because I have been educated and assisted and loved by people like yourself and my students. Uh, One of the ones that, you know, was on the track team at UT and we just, from the moment she walked in my office, we hit it off. We are still friends to this day and everything. And during the whole George Floyd thing and everything, I was just like beside myself and, you know, I communicated with her about, you know, what do I do and everything. And she was like, so Rob, you know how much I love you and I know how much you love me, but this is something you have to do on your own. As a person of color, I can't Mm -hmm. tell you, this is not my responsibility, first of Mm -hmm. all. That's not my responsibility. This is your responsibility. You need to educate yourself. And she said, here are some books I would recommend (laughs) reading. And I read those and started to understand that even with my attitude, I'm sort of part of the problem in terms of like not understanding the depth that racism is rooted in our society. I mean, I mean, in places that we don't even think about, it's so deep in our society so systemic as you know as it's pointed out to us that oh man it is just it's going to be a long haul but you know you just got to start biting it off a little piece at a time and do what you can and so I feel that standing up and standing with people uh, is what I need to be doing and so that's what my focus is right now is to try to understand how I fit in to that when it's not part of my career, because I certainly want it to be part of my personal endeavors to continue that advocacy. Uh, And then also to be involved in like human uh, rights campaign or something like that to advocate for my community. And I think, you know, strangely enough, uh, not strangely enough, just I think that being in that community, because that was not a community that I mean, it had its issue, like gay men sometimes were really mean to lesbians. And then, but I mean, you know, being gay, there were a lot of different people that were gay. And so I was around a very diverse population. You know, once I came out and everything, I was again around a lot of different people. And that just helped me understand how much everyone brings to the table and how 
valuable everyone is and how that, you know, people can see things that I can't see or know things that I don't know. And I know things that they don't know and everything. And this is a community effort, you know, whether no matter what we're talking about, taking care of students, taking care of each other or whatever, it's a community thing. It's a it's a big job ahead of you that you have, but uh, and it's it's thankless and it's going to be low paying, but <laughs> it, it's it's necessary. So thank you for, well, for doing it. I'm up for that challenge. Let me yeah. tell you that. That's for sure. If nothing else, then all this that we've talked about thus far has prepared me for that. And that is a perfect end today because I, I know we went way over time so I want to give you back your time and get back to your day I love you thank you I appreciate you I see you I cannot wait to see what you do next um and yeah I love this thank you so much Rob oh all of Jen all of that right back at you uh just I see you I love you so much you are such a wonderful part of my life and I just am so thankful and so fortunate for that and since we've done this today I realized that even though you're far away it's one of those classic things of like you were right here and I didn't take advantage of that now that you're gone I realize how screwed up I was and not doing that but now I've found that we can communicate with each other so let's do it on a more regular basis okay yes have a great day dear love you Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this episode of the Wise and Wine podcast. Don't forget, episodes come out every Tuesday wherever you find podcasts. Remember to rate, subscribe, and review. You can also find information about my guests on my Instagram page at Wise and Wine Podcast or send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns at wiseandwine at gmail.com. So I hope that our time today helps you pass the time on your commute, pass the time on the treadmill, or pass the time while you're working on those TPS reports. And hopefully you left this day a little wiser. Have a great day. Bye-bye.